Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Good evening, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, host of Disrupted on Connecticut Public. Welcome to tonight's fourth Congressional District Debate, live from the David Levinson Theater here on the campus of Norwalk Community College. Tonight's debate is a collaboration between the League of Women Voters of Connecticut and Connecticut Public. Before I introduce the candidates, let me first go over the cumulative time format. The format is designed to allow the candidates time to discuss the issues. The only rule is that the total time used by each candidate by the conclusion of the debate must be approximately the same. The candidates will not be restricted to one or two minute responses. Instead, they may spend as little or as much time as they feel is appropriate to discuss each issue. Our goal is to encourage debate. The candidates will take turns being the first to respond to a question. And at the conclusion of the question period of this debate, each candidate will make a two-minute closing statement. Members of the League of Women Voters are serving as timers for the debates, and they will keep us informed of the time expended. If a serious imbalance in time used occurs during the course of the debate, I will call it to their attention. Applause is permitted at the start and at the end of tonight's program. And now, the candidates. Democratic nominee, Jim Himes. And Republican nominee, Jamie Stevenson. The first question was chosen by a coin flip and it goes to Mr. Himes. I want to start with a question that is top of mind for many voters and that is the economy. What action should the federal government take to address inflation? Well, um, thank you for the question, Dr. Brown-Dean, and let me start by thanking the League of Women Voters and CT Public for sponsoring tonight's debate. The economy is top of mind, um, and it's a challenging and confusing moment in the economy right now because uh, if you think about what we've been through in the last three years, uh, we went through a pandemic that no one ever imagined. Uh, we lost 1.1 million Americans, 6.5 million people around the globe, and we shut down the global economy two years ago. That had never happened before. And over the course of the last two and a half years, we've restarted that economy. And that restart has been challenging. That restart was assisted in this country and in other countries by a very, very substantial program of federal aid that provided paycheck protection program monies to probably every small business uh, in this area that saved museums, 
and theaters with the Shuttered Venue program that provided cash to Americans who had lost their jobs, that pro provided unemployment insurance, um, and I could go on. Um, hopefully we're out of that, but we're not out of it from an economic standpoint. Uh, economic growth has been strong, particularly in 2021. The unemployment rate in this country is at a record low in modern times, but Americans are struggling with inflation every single day at the gas pump, at the grocery store, and that's a result of the fact that our supply lines are badly damaged. And we're not buying oil from Russia or from Iran or from Venezuela, so gas prices are a little higher. This hurts Americans every single day. Your question was, what are we doing about it? Right before we wound up our term in Washington, we addressed one of the biggest costs that Americans struggle with, which is healthcare costs. When for the first time in a generation, we said that Medicare would be able to negotiate drug prices with the drug companies something that will bring down the price of drugs for our senior citizens on Medicare and for people around the country. We said that no American will pay more than $35 for a month's worth of insulin. We said that senior citizens will have their healthcare expenses capped at $2,000 a year. We've done other things. We, uh, the President is releasing a million barrels of oil a day from, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in order to try to put some downward pressure on gas prices. Americans are about to learn uh, in fact, we, it was announced today that Social Security recipients will see an 8% increase. That's the cost of living adjustment. 8% increase in their cost of living in their, uh, in their Social Security payments. That's going to be about $150 uh, a month for our senior citizens. And for the first time in a very long time, their Medicare premiums are going to go down. So we have work to do on inflation. We got a number today that was not comfortable. It's a number that is actually a little bit better than our fellow democracies around the world that are suffering 10 and 11% inflation, but we have a lot of work to do. The Federal Reserve has a lot of work to do. The Federal Reserve is in the process now of raising interest rates. That's what they do in an inflationary environment. That too is causing pain for people who want mortgages, but that's gonna have to happen. Uh, and we need to continue to do what we've done in the last six months around healthcare costs, around energy costs, to make sure that inflation no longer plagues the American public. Ms. Stevenson. Thank you. Good evening, Dr. Brown-Dean. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you to the League of Women Voters and to Connecticut Television for this evening's forum. I'm grateful for everybody that's here in person and especially for those watching at home to see democracy in action. Um, first and importantly, I want to express my condolences to the families of DeMonte and Hamzy. Uh, those officers were killed um, in the line of duty and I hope that we can all extend our prayers and thoughts to them, their families, their colleagues, and to our brothers and sisters in law enforcement across this great state. Inflation, there's so much to talk about here. You asked the question about what we're going to do to fight inflation, but let's talk a little bit about why we're here right now. For the first time in my memory, maybe in history, our government closed our economy. We have to make sure that we elect leaders who will never again allow government to shut down our economy and to hurt families and small businesses in the way that they've been hurt. When I was first selectman in the town of Darien, being a leader leading through this global pandemic, I would drive down the street of Darien and see all of our small businesses shuttered. I couldn't buy a book at the local bookstore, but I could go across the street to the liquor store. And then I could drive into Norwalk and I could see the big box stores that were open. 
This was our government picking winners and losers. That's not the job of government. So our government has to stop being reactionary. Um, it's the, the overspending. My opponent didn't mention the fact that we've spent trillions and trillions of dollars over the last few years in reaction to our government-induced uh, economic shutdown, and that's what's thrown us into this inflationary condition. So first and foremost, we have to understand the way families understand how to prioritize our spending. And second, we have to make sure um, that we're taking care of those who were hurt the most. Um, the things that my opponent mentioned are going to take years to take effect. The things that were in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, I think everyone agrees that it's anything but an Inflation Reduction Act. It's really a climate change bill in another name. Um, he also mentioned uh, taking oil from our strategic reserve to help people uh, feel less pain at the pump. But guess what? We had a historic hurricane hit the state of Florida just at the time when we might need those strategic reserves. So we shouldn't be using our strategic stockpile to manipulate the marketplace. And in regard to the increase in Social Security, thank goodness our seniors are going to see an 8% increase in their Social Security because inflation is standing at 8.2%. They're still not going to get ahead, but at least they're going to mark time a little bit. Um, so we need to make sure that government understands their proper role and that we can never shut down our economy again, even though we faced a historic global pandemic. Ms. Stevenson, I'll bring the next question to you here, and it relates to a part of the first question. Do you support lowering the age for Medicare? Why or why not? Uh, actually, I don't support lowering the age of Medicare. Um, I actually think we should look to incrementally raise the age of Medicare because uh, we simply can't afford it. America can't afford it. Um, and we're seeing that, that people are working longer and longer. Um, I'm actually afraid that now with the inflationary conditions that we're in right now, people that had made a decision to retire are going to have to go back into the workforce. Um, so no, I do not support lowering the age of Medicare. Mr. Hines. I do. I very much do. Uh, the Medicare program, which covers tens of millions of Americans, um, senior citizens, um, is one of the most popular programs that we have. By and large, seniors are enormously happy with the Medicare program. And the reason it's smart um, is both economic and, frankly, moral. Economically, it's smart because the younger you are, generally speaking, the better health care risk you are. And so by bringing younger people at their own option, obviously, if they have uh, um, health care through their employer, God bless them, they should stay with that. But at their option, what you've done now is you've actually lowered the age of the Medicare population. That will create downward pressure on the costs associated with Medicare. You can talk to any insurance executive. They will tell you, let's get younger people into the pool. The moral reason, and here I'm glad, I'm glad this is a point of real contrast. Um, my opponent just said that we can't afford it. My opponent hasn't had the experience that I've had over the many years listening to people who lost their jobs at age 61. Try getting a job at age 61. Try getting health insurance at age 61. It's tragic, absolutely tragic. And I've been through at least two economic catastrophes. I was sworn into office 
at the height of the crisis of 2009, where millions of Americans lost their job. A lot of them were elderly. They had no hope for health insurance. So it's good economics, it's good insurance, and I do believe that a country that can spend $800 billion a year on weapons and armaments can afford to provide health care options for our senior citizens. Ms. Stevenson, would you like to rebut? I would. I actually know a little bit about folks who lose their jobs late in life. My father worked for a steel company in Reading, Pennsylvania. Actually, there was a factory here in Bridgeport that he used to travel to often. And he lost his job because America outplaced um, the steel manufacturing to China in the 1980s. And he lost his job two years before he was eligible to receive a pension. So he had no assistance. He had to uh, make do with his social security. My mom had to go back to work later in her life. And it was very, very difficult. Um, but. You know, I say that to underscore the fact that I do understand a little bit about this. Um, we should have a conversation about health care in this country, and I hope that we have a, a question about that this evening, because there's many other things that we need to consider. Um, but uh, again, we have to pick and choose, and we have to prioritize our spending the way we do in our households every day. And I don't think that America can afford lowering the age of Medicare. Thank you, Mr. Himes, I want to stay on this same topic about health care. And that question is, what should the federal government be doing to address rising health care costs in our country? It's a great question. And um, just to make the point very clear on the last conversation, we do need to pick and choose. And I will always pick and choose to provide health care to our elderly population, whatever it takes. So your question is a good one. And in fact, it's one that that sort of inaugurated my um, arrival in the United States Congress. I'd never been in politics before, and the first thing practically that I got to deal with was the Affordable Care Act. Uh, enormously controversial. Um, we were promised by the Republican Party death panels that would send grandma off to an early grave. Uh, we were promised that uh, costs would spiral completely out of control. And in fact, what we know now, 13 years later, is that the Affordable Care Act co covered 20 million Americans. 20 million Americans who otherwise would not have health insurance. This has become deeply personal to me in the last year and a half um, because my wife received a breast cancer diagnosis. And there wasn't a day that didn't go by where I didn't think, thank God I've got health insurance. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have that kind of life-threatening moment and to think that you couldn't see the best doctors, that you couldn't go to the hospital, that you couldn't be treated. And that's the position. That was the position of tens of millions of Americans. No more. So the challenge now is how do we reduce costs? And there's a lot of innovation happening, but I'm going to go back to what I said. We've been talking about this since I've been in Congress. And we did something about it two months ago. Now, Mrs. Stevenson is, cor is correct. It's going to take a little bit of time to get the drug negotiations done. Medicare, which is a very big operation, needs to negotiate with some very big pharmaceutical companies who are not in the business or the habit of reducing their prices. That's not going to happen overnight. But thanks to the Democratic Congress, without a single Republican vote, it might not be tomorrow, but very soon, 
our senior citizens, and our population in general, because other insurance companies follow Medicare's lead, are going to see lower prescription drug prices. That is a huge accomplishment. We're not done. We're not done. Again, I've, my family has spent way too much time in a healthcare arena in the last year and a half. Um, we need to rethink the model. Doctors and our entire healthcare system get paid a lot of money to fix you when you're broken, to deal with the disease. Nobody makes money from keeping you from getting there. So I don't know exactly what the 21st, healthcare, 21st century healthcare system is going to look like, but I do know that it's going to be when we incentivize the market to keep us healthy. Medicare, which we've talked a little bit about tonight, also pays, by the way, for dialysis for any aged uh, diabetics. It's a tragic thing if you're on dialysis because you have diabetes. And it's very, very hard on the government's budget because we pay th for it through Medicare. A lot of those cases can be prevented through nutritional counseling, keeping people from getting to the point where they get that kind of diabetes. So I don't know exactly what the healthcare system looks like 10 years from now, but we've got to reorient it towards keeping us healthy and therefore keeping us less expensive away from just paying a ton of money when things go wrong. Ms. Stevenson. Yes, thank you. Um, the Affordable Care Act also said that you were going to be able to keep your doctor, and we know that that wasn't true. My daughter, who's 27 years old, a very healthy, young 27-year-old, pays over $6,000 a year now for her uh, health care through the Affordable Care Act. So for many, it still remains unaffordable. But I'd like to talk about health care in a more holistic manner. We need to work on the health and wellness of this country, not from a reactive perspective, but from a prevention and wellness perspective. Um, and we need to make sure that our, our medical systems and our insurance companies are providing incentives for people to be as healthy as they can be. In Connecticut alone, over 36% of our residents are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. And it costs over $4 billion a year for medical care for those people. I'm very glad that um, most people have the supports that they need, but many don't. So um, we need to start at a very young age. We need to work with our bureaucratic network, the, the FDA, and make sure that we revise the things like the food pyramid, which have been completely out of whack in relation to wellness science for a very long time. And we need to take a fresh, out-of-the-box approach. I believe that we should be allowed to buy health insurance across state lines. If you can go get an abortion across a state line today, you should be able to buy an insurance policy across state lines. And that would infuse the system with a lot more competition, which ultimately raises the quality of services and brings down prices. Ms. Stevenson, for the next question, let's go to an issue that you just hinted toward, and that is earlier this year, the U.S. Supreme Court removed a constitutional right to abortion. Do you believe that abortion access should be codified at the federal level or decided at the state level? Thank you very much. Um, you know, that's a really uh, difficult decision and one that's um, debated daily in the media. And whether you believe that Roe v. Wade was appropriately decided in 1973, a generation of women, including myself, have understood that we had a right that the Supreme Court reversed this summer. I am a firm believer in a woman's right to choose her, 
health care decisions with the support of her doctors and her family. Um, and if it should be codified at the federal level, I believe we need to have that conversation. My opponent has been in Washington for 14 years. There are at least two occasions with a strong Democrat majority that he had the opportunity to codify the protections of Roe versus Wade, and he chose not to. I hope that when I'm in Congress, I get to be at the table to have that conversation. As a woman, I understand how important it is that our rights are protected. Mr. Hines. There's a Yiddish word, chutzpah. It's a funny definition. Chutzpah is when a child kills his father and his mother and then goes in front of the judge and wants clemency because he's an orphan. Chutzpah is a Republican candidate attacking a Democrat for not codifying Roe v. Wade. When the Republican Party, and they make no bones about this, uh, this is not a Democrat talk, the Republican Party has been engaged in a two-generation, 50-year-long effort to reverse Roe v. Wade, and they succeeded. And they're not done. We were told that this is a states' rights issue. States' rights. Because that was part of your question. Is it a states' rights issue? That's what we were told. It was about three minutes after the Dobbs versus Jackson decision that Senator Lindsey Graham put forward a national abortion ban. What about states' rights, Senator Graham? And by the way, the reason I get a little animated about this, apart from the fact that a Democrat is being attacked by a Republican over Roe v. Wade, the reason I get a little animated about it is that they're not done. They're not done. Read Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson. Obergefell, which found a constitutional right to marriage equality. Connecticut versus Griswold. In my grandparents' generation, constitutional right to birth control. Loving, constitutional right to interracial marriage. Clarence Thomas said those are all on the table. I've never seen in my lifetime the rollback of rights like that. And you know why I haven't seen it? Because the Supreme Court over 250 years of American history has generally, not always, but generally been in the business of granting Americans more rights. Now they're in the business because there was a 50 year long effort led by people like Leonard Leo and all the right wing think tanks to bring Roe v. Wade to an end. That succeeded and they're not done. And look, this is not a difficult decision if what we're talking about is the government's role in this. My opponent said it's a difficult decision. Nah, for us it's not a difficult decision. This is a decision in any circumstance for a woman to make. And for that woman, it is a difficult decision. And I'll say it right now. You know, I respect profoundly, and I know lots of people who, who oppose abortion, and I don't have a good argument for them. I know religious Catholics who say, explain to me why I should be comfortable with abortion. I'm not sure I can do that, because it's a profoundly difficult issue for the woman involved. And that's why Jamie Stevenson, Jim Himes, Joe Biden, and Lindsey Graham have actual, have no business in that decision. Ms. Stevenson, would you like to respond? Absolutely, and yes, I do have chutzpah. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, this is why you have to elect me as a Republican, because I have a common sense approach to women's rights. 
It's actually critically important that we hire people like me as a Republican to go to Washington to help moderate those opinions that Jim was talking about. But I think Jim's fear-mongering here because I want you to also know that I have signed the Respect for Marriage Act. I think everyone should be able to love who they love and marry who they marry. And I've also been, be, been endorsed by the log cabin Republicans in support of gay marriage. So if you're looking to make a change in Washington, which is exactly why I'm standing here on this stage tonight, you start by electing Republicans that have common sense and who understand the importance of these issues. And truth be told, as a woman, I know these issues. I'm passionate about these issues. I have four daughters who are also passionate about these issues. So I really look forward to being at the table in Washington when we discuss these things and talk about whether uh, the federal government should codify Roe v. Wade protections. Mr. Himes, Dr. Brown, can I can I respond quickly to one that? One moment. Could I just remind yeah. our audience that our goal is to get to as many questions as we can? So please reserve your applause to the end, Mr. Himes. Yeah, I I just wanted to say I um, I really admire Mrs. Stevenson's willingness as a Republican to say that she supports a woman's right to choose. Um, I've represented a very moderate district for a long time. I've tried to do it in a very independent and thoughtful way, and I know how hard that is. Sometimes you take a lot of incoming from your own team. Um, so I, I really respect and admire Mrs. Stevenson for saying that she will stand up for a woman's right to choose. But make no mistake, make no mistake at all. If Mrs. Stevenson is in a Republican majority in the House, maybe, maybe she'll be a dissenting vote. But make no mistake, if Lindsey Graham's legislation for a national abortion ban passes the Senate, it will pass the House, and we will have a national ban on abortion. Mr. Himes, let's go to our next question, and that is about gun safety. What should the federal government do to address the balance between public safety and the Second Amendment? It's what the federal government should do. It's also what the federal government did do. One of the things I'm very proud of in this last two years is that for the first time in a generation, the federal government passed bipartisan gun safety legislation, the Bipartisan Safe Communities Act. In my opinion, it's a long way from where we need to go because it didn't include universal background check, which is supported by something like 99% of Americans, and we haven't been able to get it through. It didn't include any sort of assault rifle ban, which I understand is complicated, but it's something that, as Mrs. Stevenson said, we need to keep talking about. But it did tighten up rules for the acquisition of firearms by people under the age of 21. It extended a policy that we've employed to great effect here in the state of Connecticut, which is red flag laws. It used to be that you could have your weapons temporarily taken away from you um, if you were married to somebody who was acting, uh, if you were married to somebody who could be a victim of violence. We expanded that to include anybody in an intimate relationship. It's a boyfriend-girlfriend rule. So, it's what the federal government has done for the first time in a generation. But there's a long, I think there's a long way to go yet. And, and it's not just, again, we get into this argument, are you pro-gun or are you anti-gun? I'm a supporter of Second Amendment rights. I swear every two years to uphold and defend the Constitution, including all of its amendments, including the Second Amendment. So I'm sworn to uphold, and I believe in the Second Amendment. 
But I also believe that like pretty much every other country on the world, we can preserve those gun rights and take the carnage that is killing tens of thousands of Americans every single year down to the levels of other democracies. So we have made real progress on a bipartisan basis. Again, I, I was pretty amazed that we got bipartisan uh, gun safety legislation done, but we have a long way to go and Connecticut points the way. Connecticut has shown that you can, consistent with the rights of lawful gun owners, put in place safety regulations which bring down the level of violence. Ms. Stevenson. Yes, thank you. Um, there's not much daylight between uh, Jim and I on this issue. Um, and again, I break with my party on this. I do believe in common sense gun legislation. I actually have my pistol permit, and when I got my pistol permit, I had to take a class, I had to have my fingers uh, printed, and I had to have a background check. I'm okay with that to make sure that only the people that understand about weapons are allowed to have weapons in their hands. I really do. Um, and we can have that conversation about military-grade weapons and who shouldn't, shouldn't have those. I think Connecticut has done a very good job. Um, there was no choice for the state of Connecticut after the horrors at Sandy Hook. Um, Jim talks about other countries around the world. Well, the United States is the only country with a constitution um, as strong and wonderful as ours that has at its foundation individual rights and personal liberties. Um, so we have to remember that the Second Amendment is very important. What's lost in the conversation, though, on gun safety is the fact that our country is littered with illegal guns. And now we have the problem of um, 3D printed guns and ghost guns. Very, very difficult to enforce. Um, I applaud the work that the federal government has done recently on gun legislation. Um, and I think it's very interesting that they're trying to reach into the mental health records of younger people that are looking to buy weapons. Um, but I need to understand if that oversteps HIPAA laws in any way. We, we want to make sure that, that people aren't stigmatized for reaching out for mental health care services. Um, so it, it's something that I need to do a little bit more research about. Um, but I think the, what the federal government has done is representative of what most Americans and what I also believe is the right way to go with gun safety. Next question is about immigration. It's a major concern for many voters. Ms. Stevenson, this question starts with you. What action should Congress take to address the need for comprehensive immigration reform? Yes, thank you. This is a great question. I understand why uh, migrants want to come into the United States. We're all migrants. We've all come from immigrant families. This is the greatest country on the face of the earth. But we must have sustainable legal immigration. Right now, in spite of what you might read in the media, we do not have a closed border. Our borders are open. We have four million people that have come into this country illegally since the Biden administration began. And with those migrants are sex traffickers and enough fentanyl to kill every man, woman, and child in the United States. 
I don't hear my opponent and his leadership talking about these serious issues related to immigration. We need to develop a sustainable legal immigration system. I welcome migrants to come here. Um, they will be additive to our society as they have been for generations. But right now we are in crisis mode with uh, our border problems and I think my opponent has been absent on that issue so I look forward to his answer. Mr. Himes? Um, I agree with just about everything Mrs. Stevenson said. Um, we need secure borders. Uh, they are not as secure as they should be. Um, if we're serious about taking this issue off the table, we'll do some other things too uh, that I suspect Mrs. Stevenson would probably agree with me on. The reason people come here generally um, is because of the economic opportunities. If you can make $2 a day in Honduras or if you're suffering brutal violence from gangs in Honduras or El Salvador, that's quite an incentive to come here. So if we're serious about this, we'll also find ways to make absolutely certain that anybody who is working in this country is entitled to do so. Because if you take away that economic incentive, um, you're going to take away a lot of that flow. I'm sorry we don't talk about that more because we spend so much time on walls and other stuff that, that we don't talk about dealing with the underlying incentive. And if we are going to be really serious about this too, we should do something we've always done as a country, which is help our neighbors. Um, listen to the stories of people who are seeking refuge at the southern border. Parents so desperate that they would send their seven and eight-year-olds through Mexico, a journey none of us would want to make because the situation at home is that bad. We should invest in safety in these countries. We should invest in development so that people don't have that brutal incentive to come here. The one, the one area in which I'm going to disagree a little bit with uh, Mrs. Stevenson, and, and it's not over the seriousness of the problem, it's just wrapping it up in, in illegal migration. Um, fentanyl is about as serious an issue as we have in this country. But, and you can look it up right now on your iPhones, fentanyl comes in, Chinese precursors, mixed in Mexico, it's a CBP, look at um, the CBP website, 90% of fentanyl comes in through legal ports of entry, stashed in trunks and underneath trucks and that sort of thing. So. I agree with everything that Ms. Stevenson said just about, but if we're going to talk about fentanyl, let's, let's be honest about how it's getting in and how we can help solve that problem. Ms. Stevenson, would you like to respond? Yes, just briefly. <clears throat> well, the drug cartels are in charge of the border, and we need to give um, every support that we can to Border Patrol and the DEA so that they can actually do their jobs instead of managing the tremendous overburden of the flow of migrants into this country. I think that's part of the problem. Our DEA does a great job, but right now they're not able to actually do their jobs. And along with the flow of fentanyl into this country, um, we have known terrorists on the watch list that have been able to come through our borders. So our open borders pose a tremendous domestic risk to the United States. You know, I, I agree with Mr. Himes that um, the United States should be a good partner and help our partners. Um, I absolutely believe that to be true. Uh, you know, I think that um, building strong relationships with South America um, and our Canadian partners um, will be very beneficial to the United States. But a country without a border is not a country. 
and we have to immediately solve the crisis of the open border. And no, I'm not necessarily talking about walls, but maybe I am talking about walls in the places where that makes sense and where our border patrol can't really get to those areas. We should not accept the humanitarian crisis of babies dying in the Rio Grande River. That's not okay to me. So I really look forward as your next Congresswoman to demanding that the federal government put in place sustainable legal immigration system. Again, I would just remind our audience to please hold your applause. Mr. Himes, let's move on to the topic of education. What in your view should the federal government be doing to help reduce the cost of higher education? It's a great question. I'm glad you're asking it right here because we are standing in about half the answer to that question. Um, and let me explain that. There's a lot to talk about here. Um, as I think most of our audience will know, the federal government today helps in education in a couple of ways. Uh, through Pell Grants, which provide $6,500 to students aspiring to secondary education uh, who meet income limits, who are living generally in poverty, through student loans, guaranteed student loans. Uh, and that's, that's kind of it. Um, our institutions of higher learning, which you're looking at a guy who's now in year seven of paying tuition, um, have been raising their prices every year, 10%, um, are creating a huge problem. And the federal government doesn't have a lot of leverage. Maybe, maybe the government has leverage over UConn and the state university systems, but we don't have a lot of leverage over private universities. But what, that doesn't mean there's not something that we can do that I think is really important. It brings me back to Norwalk Community College. One of the things that I think the federal government has uh, made a big mistake on over time has been the emphasis on four-year college. And I think both of us had the opportunity to have a wonderful experience at a four-year college. But the reality is that about half of Americans don't do that. And for too long, we've been obsessed almost with four-year universities, ignoring the remarkable training that can happen in apprenticeships programs, in, in, in areas like healthcare, nursing, HVAC, the, the, these skills that you can't export. Those jobs will not be lost. And those jobs get trained right here at Norwalk Community College and at Housatonic. Community College in Bridgeport. One of the things I'm proudest of in my tenure as a member of Congress is I've been able to deliver uh, millions of dollars to Housatonic's advanced manufacturing program. The advanced manufacturing program up there, they're taking high school kids and they're teaching them how to be manufacturers, which if anybody thinks that manufacturing is what it was 50 years ago, no, no, no. This is computers. This is cat cam driven high tech stuff. And at Housatonic Community College, in the middle of Bridgeport, they're taking kids from high school and they're giving them these skills and those kids get jobs at Sikorsky, building Black Hawk helicopters, making middle, way, middle, middle class wages. Um, and so I think we need to focus a lot more on the community colleges, on the apprenticeship programs that give young people who, for whom university isn't necessarily the right thing, the ability to be firmly in the middle class knowing that their jobs are not at risk of being exported abroad. Ms. Stevenson, to you. Thank you. Uh, yes, I too know a little something about 
college tuitions. My husband and I have put five of our children through college, and I will agree with Mr. Himes that four-year college is not for everybody, and we really need to, do, to allow students to um, understand the other opportunities that are available to them in terms of the trades and manufacturing, um, and a more well-diversified economy here in Connecticut, I think, will help bring that process along. And I'm grateful for the work that has been done to help students connect with high-tech manufacturing jobs. But your question was about the cost of higher education. So as I look at it, the system itself is responsible for the high cost of higher education. The federal student loan program where the loan dollars don't actually flow into the pockets of the borrowers, they go directly to the four-year institutions. Um, so there's no incentive for four-year institutions to keep their prices um, at a reasonable and affordable level for students. We saw recently, um, you know, in a lead-up to this midterm election, um, uh, the Biden administration uh, wanting to forgive student loans. Well, you know, for me, um, who has worked very hard to pay off my own student loans with the help of my husband um, and to pay for my children's college, and when I think about all of the veterans and our military service people who had to earn their education um, in the military, literally putting their life on the line, um, to get their higher education. I think it's a slap in the face to people like our veterans um, that this administration is just going to forgive student loans. Why should a bus driver in Bridgeport pay for four-year college loan for a lawyer in Greenwich? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but uh, Mr. Himes is right. This is here, we are here at Norwalk Community College, which is an amazing institution. And the relationship between Norwalk High School and Norwalk Community College and the P-TECH program, these are all really positive, innovative ways for kids to get great education, to get college credits while they're still in high school. And, you know, if I had, if I could... Um, have something on my wish list, it would be for those four-year institutions to allow students to matriculate through their education in a lot less than four years. Mr. Himes, would you like to respond? No, no, I think that's fine. Okay, so let's move on to our next question. As the days seem to get cooler, many people are raising questions about energy cost. Mm -hmm. And so, Ms. Stevenson, that first question goes to you. What should the federal government do to lower energy cost? They should immediately ignite the power of the fossil fuel industry here in the United States. We have all of the energy that we need right here within our own borders. I'm old enough to remember when we became energy independent, and that was a big deal. That was a proud moment for the United States because energy independence is also domestic security. So we need to um, unleash our oil and gas reserves so that we can help our, help our residents um, pay less at the gas pump and when they're putting fuel in their oil tanks. I've talked to a number of people who've gotten staggering bills as they're just filling up their, their furnaces for the winter season. 
But I will also say that we need to do that at the same time that we are making commitments and working toward a cleaner energy future. Um, my husband and I have never been trendy, but I will tell you that we put solar panels on our house back in 2006. And it was a great thing for us. It offsets 25% of our electricity costs. Thank goodness, because Connecticut has the highest electricity rates in the country. Um, unfortunately, um, we have right over you know, to our west, we have um, vast reserves of natural gas that we can't get from there to here because of you know, political posturing and the unwillingness to build pipelines to get that. So um, Connecticut and New England is, is really an energy desert. Um, I believe in an all-of-the-above approach to solving our energy issues, and the federal government should be investing in innovative technologies, hydrogen, clean and modular nuclear. So really an all-of-the-above uh, solution to solving the really serious energy problem we're having right now. Mr. Himes. I think the question was, it's cold outside. What can the federal government do to help people um, pay for uh, their energy costs? And again, I can tell you that um, we are doing something. Uh, right before I left Washington, we passed a continuing resolution to, to, to keep the budget up and running, to keep the government up and running, and we included in that $1 billion for a program called LIHEAP. LIHEAP is a program that is really important in New England because we're, we're, we're cold here in New England. And uh, that is money that provides for lower income people help uh, to make sure that they don't go cold in the wintertime. Um, and I, once again, find myself agreeing with a lot of what Mrs. Stevenson said. I might not put climate change as an afterthought. Um, I might actually say that um, while we do need all of the above energy today, and in fact, we have all of the above energy today, about 40% of Connecticut's electricity uh, is from the Millstone nuclear plant, and we get an awful lot from natural gas. And like the United States, we get whatever, 15% or so uh, from sustainables. Um, again, it's not just what we should do, it's what we did. Um, you heard Mrs. Stevenson disparage the Inflation Reduction Act for being just a climate change bill. That's not true, because it, it actually, we've talked a lot about the Medicare changes, which were pretty dramatic. Um, but okay, maybe it is just a climate change bill. For the thing that is perhaps most existential a threat to the planet in the next 50 years, I'm not sure I would characterize the bill that way, but I will tell you that that bill encapsulated the concept of all of the above. It said that for every uh, wind generation project or photovoltaic project, there will be a natural gas or oil lease approved, one to one. It had money to expand the use of modular nuclear reactors. So Millstone is this massive reactor that provides about 40%, as I said, of Connecticut space. Modular reactors could be built quickly and easily and provide power to a city. Uh, that bill contained um, help for the development of those things. Um, so yes, all of the above. Uh, and I have generally supported uh, precisely that. But make no mistake, the next time Russia invades Ukraine or there is an Iran, I don't want the rest of the world hostage to dictators that are peddling oil. And the long run solution to that is developing clean and sustainable energy right here in the United States. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Mr. Himes, for this next question, it's a little broader than the particular policy issues we've discussed thus far, and that is because there is a pervasive sense of division and hostility here in the United States. What do you propose to help bring the American people together around our common interests? I was in the chamber on January 6th when the Capitol was attacked by insurrectionists who brutalized police officers, broke windows, and if any of you had a chance to watch the video from today's hearings, descended in the Capitol in a murderous rage, looking not just to kill Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but looking to kill Mike Pence. That is maybe the second most painful memory for me of this political polarization we find ourselves in. The most painful memory, quite frankly, is that after they swept the capital of those people, after they cleaned up the feces that they had spread in the core of our democracy, after they cleaned up the broken glass, the majority of my Republican colleagues, many of whom I consider friends, went back into that chamber at 11 o'clock that night and voted to overturn the results of the election. So I have two thoughts to answer your question. Number one, and I try to model this, we got to get away from this concept that if you disagree, you're a traitor, you're un-American. I tell high school kids who come to the Capitol, it's hard, but embrace the fight that we have because our system is strong because we have different points of view. You can go to places where there is no debate. You can go to China, you can go to Iran, you can go to North Korea, there is no debate there. We are strong because we have that debate. But if we allow ourselves, and I can model this, and Mrs. Stevenson can model this, and I think we've actually done a reasonably good job of that tonight, but at the end of the day, it's all of you. If you wake up tomorrow morning and you're a Democrat, and you hate the fact that your daughter may marry a Republican, which is a thing now, or if you're sliding into the place where 40% of Americans live today, that maybe violence is okay, there's nothing that we can do to fix that. But democracy relies on the responsibility of its citizens. And so there's lots of other problems. Social media is a new thing and a profound irritant. You know, social media has algorithmically figured out how to enrage us, and we've got to deal with that, and that's a hard problem. 
I think Mrs. Stevenson party has, has some challenges here. Polls show that 60% of Republicans nationally do not believe that Joe Biden is a legitimately elected president. I've heard Mrs. Stevenson, to her great credit, say that he is. But 60% of Republicans don't believe that. That is not believing in our democracy, and that needs to change. Ms. Stevenson. Yes, thank you. Um, January 6th was a very dark day in our country, and I don't condone anything that happened that day. I want to be on the record as saying that. Um, party divisiveness, though, I think what we need to do is look at the root causes of why what happened on January 6th actually happened. There were, half of our country is feeling disenfranchised. And so it is the responsibility of leaders like myself and Mr. Himes and all of our colleagues to role model civility. I've done that for 12 years. Uh, as Darianne's first selectman for 10 years, 12 years on the board, uh, blessed to serve as uh, elected by my bipartisan peers to chair our regional council of governments, uh, the state's municipal insurance agency, and vice president of uh, CCM. It's my experience of being a bipartisan leader is exactly what we need in Washington to bring the political temperature down. And I agree with Mr. Himes that social media is tearing apart the fabric of our communities. I know we have a lot of people here tonight from my town, Darien, and I think that they will agree with me um, that there's a lot of people who um, are no longer friends within our community because of the things that people say on social media that they would not otherwise say if they were in the presence of someone. So, um, and truthfully, as a mom, um, our kids are watching. They're watching our behavior, and we need to role model civility. So, you know, it is my pledge to continue working in the way I always have, respectful, open heart, open mind, um, in a bipartisan way. Uh, and if I can bring that to uh, the Congress of the United States, um, uh, I will be very honored to be able to do so. Ms. Stevenson, the next question is about national security. And so what do you see as the most pressing national security issue facing the U.S., and how should the U.S. address that threat? Unfortunately, I think over the last two years, um, the world sees weakness in the United States. And I'm going to take a moment and talk about the very day that I decided to run for Congress. And that was August 26, 2021, when I watched the incredible, uh, um, very concerning way that our president decided to withdraw our troops from Afghanistan after 20 years to meet this arbitrary goal of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, a day that I know for Mr. Himes and myself and everybody here in southwestern Connecticut is a day that we will never forget. But it was on that day, on August 26th, when we watched people falling from planes, when we left American citizens and our allies behind, and 13 brave men and women lost their lives that day 
in a rush to leave that country against the advice of military leaders. That set off a chain reaction of events around the world showing America's weakness. Uh, it emboldened Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, Mr. Himes sits on the Intelligence Committee. Hopefully he knew and he saw that, that Russia is, was surrounding Ukraine, getting ready to, um, to uh, attack. Uh, it's emboldened uh, the leader of China, making aggressions against Taiwan, and certainly has emboldened North Korea, who's now sending missiles over Japan almost every day. So what we need to do is return the United States of America to a peace-through-strength policy mentality. Um, it, we're in a very dangerous and precarious position right now. We should never be negotiating with our foes for oil. I don't know why we're doing that in, at any way, because we have everything that we need here. Um, so peace through strength is the policy that I support, and I look forward to casting my votes in that way as your next Congresswoman. Mr. Himes. I'm wondering if I've lived in the same country as Mrs. Stevenson for the last five years. Um, we can come back to Afghanistan, but you know what sends a signal of weakness to the world? When the President of the United States and Reykjavik stands next to Vladimir Putin and says, I don't believe my own CIA, I believe this guy, a murderer, a despot and a dictator, and President Donald Trump said, I don't believe the CIA, I believe Vladimir Putin. You know what sends a signal of weakness? When that same President is on the phone with a 21st century hero, President Zelensky, of Ukraine, and the President of the United States says, I'm going to send you the weapons, but I want you to do me a favor, though. And of course, that favor is to send dirt on his political opponent. Tell me what's more weak, what's more criminal than that. You know what sends a signal of weakness? Probably the worst person on the planet right now is the dictator and leader of North Korea. When the President of the United States sends his words, not mine, love letters to the most brutal dictator. When the President of the United States says that NATO is a bunch of laggards, they don't do anything, they don't pay their bills as though this were a commercial real estate transaction. That is weakness. What has Joe Biden done? And let's come back to Afghanistan because Afghanistan was a tragedy all around. But if you think that's just pure Joe Biden, we're gonna look into that a little bit. But let me tell you what strength is. Strength is when we see something that we never imagined we would see in the 21st century, a European power doing an unprovoked invasion of another European power. When Russians crossed the border into Ukraine, it was Joe Biden who rescued NATO out of the ash heap that Donald Trump had left it in and that is fighting probably the most remarkable battle of our lifetimes. And, and credit goes to the Ukrainians, but credit also goes to the United States of America and to our NATO allies, which the last president could not disparage enough. So there is no way you look at the world today, and I go into dark rooms and secret places and look at the world in very specific ways, there's no way you can look at the world today and say we are not a lot stronger, a lot more respected, and a lot more important on the stage than we were under President Donald Trump. Let's spend a minute on Afghanistan. Absolute tragedy. I've been there two or three times. Every time I go, I'm told by people with three and four stars on their shoulders that with two more years we can turn this around. Of course, we never turned it around. Joe Biden does bear responsibility for the chaos that led to the loss of life on the 13th. But remember why it happened. It happened because President Trump signed a deal with the Taliban that said, we're out of here. And in exchange, all you got to do is not host terrorists. That was Donald Trump's deal, the art of the deal. We're out of here. By the way, months before Do uh, President Biden actually with withdrew the troops, we're out of here. Just don't host terrorists. 
Two months ago, the United States killed probably the most notorious terrorist in the world, Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda in downtown Kabul. So I'm going to tell you that Joe Biden bears a lot of personal responsibility because the buck stops on the Oval Office desk. But that deal, that deal struck a year before, was a Trump deal. Stevenson, would you like to respond? I think there's a lot of what uh, Mr. Himes said that we're going to agree to disagree with. Um, you know, I, I look at that, that uh, disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, and I can only think about the people that served in that war for 20 years, the families who lost loved ones, who are probably saying today, what was it all worth? And the fact that today, Al-Qaeda and Taliban are more empowered than ever, and they have United States military equipment and communications equipment in their hands. As we go toward our last questions for the debate, I want to turn back to domestic affairs and think about transportation and infrastructure. Mr. Himes, what would you do as a member of Congress to ensure that Connecticut gets its fair share of federal infrastructure funding? Well, the first thing I would do, again, and we keep returning to this theme, is something that we already did, <clears throat> which is pass the biggest investment in American infrastructure since Dwight David Eisenhower built the interstate highway system in the 1950s. We heard about an infrastructure deal for four years. Didn't happen. We got it done. Biggest investment in our infrastructure since World War II. That's a big, big step. And this is a smart investment, by the way. Yes, it's bridges and tunnels. We're rebuilding the Walk Bridge. It's built bridges and tunnels and trains and everything. It's also wiring America with broadband. We learned during COVID how important it is for every household to have access to broadband. $65 billion will be made available in an echo of the depression where we decided that every American would have electricity. We've decided that every American would have access to the broadband services and the opportunity that comes with it. So what is, what is the... What is the trick about getting it here? Um, doesn't hurt to have the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee right next door in the, in the adjoining congressional district. But uh, the, um, these funds are, by and large, distributed uh, formulaically. That means that they get distributed by population. Otherwise, they are com uh, competition grants. And I'm really happy to say that we've been able to deliver on an awful lot of that stuff. I made reference to the Walk Bridge. We rebuilt. We're here in Norwalk. Take a walk, by the way, because now you can do it. Take a walk through Washington Village. It used to be one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Norwalk. Now it's beautiful. Mixed income, mixed, re mixed uh, uh, use, retail. It's a beautiful neighborhood that we were able to rebuild with federal funds. So um, a big part, maybe the big part of my job, because transportation infrastructure is so critical to this part of Connecticut, is making sure that we get the resources that we need to keep the economic lifeblood of our region flowing. <clears throat> Ms. Stevenson. Yes, thank you. Um, people may not know that Connecticut sends the most amount of taxpayer dollars to Washington and we get back the least. We are dead last in the country for federal transfers back into the state of Connecticut. 
Infrastructure is critically important. I know a little something about this as chairman of the Western Connecticut Council of Governments. We were responsible for managing the flow of federal dollars into our district for um, all kinds of transportation projects. And I'll tell you that because of government regulations, infrastructure projects take too long and they're too expensive. Um, I'd like to also point out that Mr. Himes voted against the opportunity to use excess COVID dollars on infrastructure. So, you know, I think we need to be in a place where we hire a representative who's always going to be putting uh, the incredible transportation needs of this state above um, all other special interests. Um, a good example of how things aren't working for us here in Connecticut regarding transportation, Mr. Himes talks about the Walk Bridge, and that's a very high-profile project. But I want to talk about the Congress Street Bridge. Kind of made for this debate, isn't it, Jim? Um, the Congress Street Bridge is a bridge in Bridgeport. It was a movable bridge, and it broke 25 years ago. The bridge actually cuts off the east side of Bridgeport from the downtown. There, there's good work being done in the downtown of Bridgeport, lots of building redevelopment. The east end of Bridgeport is blight. There's drug dealing. And businesses can't thrive because they're literally cut off from the downtown of Bridgeport. There's been fits and starts with our federal representatives over the years. Actually, Mr. Himes uh, campaigned on this back in 2008, the Congress Street Bridge. The Congress Street Bridge is still broken. So when I get to Congress, not only am I going to make sure that Connecticut gets its fair share, but I'm going to make sure that I shepherd those projects in a way to make sure that your investment, your taxpayer investment, actually gets those projects done because the people of Bridgeport can't wait another 25 years to fix the Congress Street Bridge. Thank you both. And at this time, we will move to the two-minute closing statements from each of our candidates. Mr. Himes, since you started with the questions, you may start with your closing remarks. Thank you, uh, Dr. Brown, Dean, and, and, and thank you again uh, to the sponsor of the debate and all of you for attending. <clears throat> I've tried for some time now to represent this district in the way it deserves to be represented, independently, thoughtfully, willing to listen to anybody. I've done dozens and dozens of town hall meetings. Years ago, the Ridgefield Republican Party invited me to come address them, and my staff said no, and I said yes. I'm going to talk to everybody, and I'm going to represent everybody. I hope to have the chance to continue to do that in these troubled times. And look, these times are as complicated and as strange as you can imagine. You, you, the media is out of control. Twitter, Facebook, Rachel Maddow, Sean Hannity and stuff. There's only one thing that matters in this job which is what have you done for the people of the United States, for the people of Connecticut, for the people of the 4th Congressional District? Look at the record. Look at what Mrs. Stevenson's team did when they controlled the Congress of the United States in the four years of the Trump administration. They had one legislative achievement, one. 
they passed a tax cut plan that blew a, blew a $2 trillion hole in the budget and delivered 83% of its benefit to the top 1% of the population in terms of income and to corporations. And by the way, they raised all your taxes because they took away the deduction for state and local taxes. One achievement. What else did they do? They got rid of Roe v. Wade. And thirdly, and we talked a little bit about this, think about, think about the way that period ended. Think about the fact, and to her great credit, Mrs. Stevenson is not one of them, but half the Republicans running for Congress today are election deniers. That's the record. So what's my record? Infrastructure, the CHIPS Act for semiconductors, bipartisan gun safety, healthcare improvements, the biggest investment ever in climate change. Cut away the noise. That's the record. And I could not be more excited to continue that record going to stand up for the people of this district, to stand up for women, and to stand up for our democracy. Thank you. Ms. Stevenson. Thank you. I'm glad Mr. Himes brought up the state and local tax deductions. He had two opportunities recently to fight to reinstate those tax deductions for the people of southwestern Connecticut, and he didn't do it. But here, during my campaign, I've spent a great deal of time in our cities and towns, and I've seen firsthand the devastation that Mr. Himes' failed leadership has caused. While Jim's been focused on doing the bidding of his party leaders, our bridges and roads have been neglected. Public housing for the elderly and disabled is in disrepair. Residents are often even held hostage in their apartments because of broken elevators at the Stratfield House in Bridgeport. And I've talked to the homeless individuals who gather every weekend under the John Street Bridge just to get a hot meal from caring volunteers. Connecticut is dead last in getting our taxpayers back from Washington. In fact, we were the lowest recipient of COVID relief funding in the country. Jim has squandered his 14 years in office and lost his ability to work with anyone who doesn't agree with him. Just look at his Twitter feed. His votes have resulted in out-of-control inflation, rising crime, fentanyl deaths, and energy dependence on our enemies. During my 10 years as Darianne's first selectman, through hurricanes, floods, and a global pandemic, Jim Himes never once reached out to me to see if we were okay. Not once. It's time for real change. I'm a leader who understands how the economy works and will focus on bringing good-paying jobs and more of your hard-owned money back here. Receiving the Independent Party nomination reflects my record of working across the aisle and my willingness to stand up to my party when you need me to. It's time to elect a Congresswoman who will be a champion for our children, our families, and our small businesses. I'll prioritize great education, the health of our children, safe streets, and a strong and secure nation. As a woman and a mother, I actually know what a woman is and why it's so important to protect women's rights in the doctor's office, the locker room, and the boardroom. Positive change will never happen by electing the same person and expecting a different result. Ms. Stevenson, I, if I could interrupt, because yes. we're now over time, and I want to be fair and ensure yep. that each of you have gotten it. Thank you both. Thank you for watching Connecticut Public and the League of Women Voters of Connecticut's debate series. But don't change the channel just yet. Connecticut Public's Frankie Graziano is standing by with your post-debate coverage. 
Our next debate will take place next Tuesday, October 18th, between the candidates for Secretary of the State in Connecticut. Walter Smith Randolph will be your host, live from the University of Hartford. And if you have a question that you'd like to ask the candidates, head over to ctpublic.org slash vote. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Have a great evening. Inside the David Levinson Theater in Norwalk, Connecticut, the site of the fourth congressional district debate between the incumbent Democrat Jim Himes and the Republican candidate Jamie Stevenson. For Connecticut Public, I'm Frankie Graziano. The candidates did have some agreement on some of the topics they debated about tonight, namely on abortion, a person's right to have an abortion, and of course, American energy independence. There was some disagreement from the candidates, namely on uh, immigration and whether or not fentanyl comes into this country illegally through illegal ports of entry, and of course, on the economy. Uh, Congressman Himes says the root causes of inflation are a pandemic related, while it is uh, the candidate, uh, Jamie Stevenson, that says that it's uh, more of a situation of democratic overspending. We're going to talk in a moment to the representatives of each candidate, and I'm gonna start by talking to the representative for Republican candidate, Jamie Stevenson, Rowena White. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Rowena. Thank and I you. just want to say really quickly, the economy. A little bit of a, of a clash between the two candidates there, but in your, in your mind, do you think that your, your candidate here, Jamie Stevenson, was able to get across that she thinks that this is a problem with the Democrats? Oh, absolutely. Um, she's been talking to folks up and down the coastline at, on a diner tour, actually, having this conversation with everybody from seniors and retirees to the diner owners themselves. And um, I'm hoping that Jim heard it loud and clear, and I, I know that for sure everybody who we meet on the trail hears it. For 10 years, uh, Jamie Stevenson was the first select woman in Darien. Mm -hmm. So there's one thing about people knowing you in that municipality, but do you think that tonight she was able to get herself out in her brand of politics more to other people in the district, in towns like Norwalk? I think she was. I think that she's been working at it a, a lot harder and a lot more visible. What people don't realize about Jamie is that she's always been there. She's been on the board of directors for LifeBridge. She's been on the board for Liberation Program. She is on the board for Stanford EMS. And so the, now she's actually putting herself forward. And so it's, it's really fun to see her shine and be out in the community like this. Rowena, thanks for your time tonight. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Frankie. And next to join us is a representative for Congressman Jim Himes, Francesca Capodilupo, another Italian like myself. I'm a Francesco, obviously. You know me as Frankie, but whatever. I have to ask you, uh, we had a fun moment tonight. Obviously, I think the candidates did agree on abortion, but it's where uh, candidate, excuse me, Congressman Himes was able to, I guess, call out uh, Jamie Stevenson and say that she had some chutzpah for uh, saying that a Democrat might be responsible for some of the things that are happening with abortion. What was your take on that situation? And do you think that maybe uh, Congressman Himes was, uh, uh, could have been seen as having fun there uh, for, from some people watching in attendance? I mean, it's not a good time if you're not having fun, but at the end of the day, listen, it's per things are pretty clear when we're talking about abortion. You're either for women's rights or you're against them, and Jim Himes is for them, period, the end. 
Jim Himes beat an incumbent 14 years ago to get this seat. He beat Chris Shays. Do you ever get worried now here as we get about a month or so from the election that it could turn the other way and this could sort of be a swing district? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think the voters of the 4th Congressional District really know who Jim Himes is. They see him all the time. They know he's delivering for the community. And at the end of the day, Frankie, this is a moment for clarity and a moment for pragmatic leaders who understand the problems we face, but more importantly, know how to address them. And Jim Himes was the only person on that stage tonight who can do both. Francesca, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Jonathan, I hope you were listening to that conversation. I just have to ask you from talking about that, you know a lot about this district. I have to ask you, do you think that this could be the fourth district? Do you think it could be up for grabs? It, it's usually at play, and it should be a consideration because of the demographics here. But most importantly, Frankie, I think as you already know, um, the majority of voters here are unaffiliated. So it could swing easily either way. If anything, since the pandemic, the numbers have increased of unaffiliated voters. So you can't take for granted that base, especially of so many New Yorkers who've been recent transplants because of COVID. Jonathan Wharton, the Associate Professor of Urban Affairs and Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University. And you guys know my next guest, the moderator tonight, who did such a great job tonight, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean host of Disrupted on Connecticut Public. Thank you, thank you. Oh, you're getting a clap. That means we have a nice audience today. <laughs> you deserve you. it. Thank you. I, I, Jonathan answered that first question. I want to move on only because I want to, we talked about these candidates being generally in agreement. Is that something you felt tonight when you were sitting behind the desk? You know, what I felt, Frankie, was that these two candidates modeled what we need to see more of in this country, and that is civility, that we can disagree. But at the end of the day, if we spend so much time on one-liners and jabs, we do a disservice to the people of this state and of this country. And so there wasn't a lot of room between them on some of the key issues, but it's also clear about what either candidate will have to do when they have to align with their party in Congress. That's the key thing to watch between the two. Abortion and a person's right to uh, reproductive rights is such a serious issue. And you see me laughing about it a second ago with Francesca, but it was such a moment in this debate where they're generally in agreement on something. And you have Jim Himes being sort of incredulous at that time that uh, Jamie Stevenson was asking whether or not it was the Democrats' fault for not being able to codify Roe versus Wade. So uh, when, you're, when you're sitting there and hearing that, Kalila, what was your reaction, I guess, to that, to that, general, that general statement? And do you think, I guess, Congressman Himes reacted uh, well enough to what uh, Jamie Stevenson had said there. You know, I think at the core of this, Frankie, is whether we talk about Democrats or Republicans, what's really key here is this issue of federalism. Will this be an issue that goes back to the federal government, goes back to the Supreme Court, or will we decide on a state-by-state -state basis? And what's at stake there, right, when you have different people controlling legislatures across the states and what that may look like after this midterm election. So while we're talking about two candidates for Congress, we also have to look at some of these state races across the country that will be affected by what Congress decides to do or not do. Jonathan, in Connecticut, you're hearing that a lot of the Republican candidates here, especially for uh, federal office, are supportive of abortion, but Jamie Stevenson goes a little bit further, right? She's, she calls herself, I, I guess, from looking at her website, I don't know if she wrote this or somebody else did, but she calls herself a, a social liberal. So do you think she was able to show voters in this district that 
she is certainly supportive of abortion and, and pretty much goes all the way out. No, she made that known, and, and that shouldn't be surprising. She's had a record of this for years. She's been pronounced about this, even and people forget she was lieutenant governor candidate too four years ago. So she made voters aware of this early, early on. It's really nothing surprising. But it was interesting nonetheless to hear them even kind of debate and bring out the realities that they are similar on this stance. Disagreements. We had one on the root causes of inflation. This is what I'm going to ask you about, Jonathan. And uh, we heard, of course, that she thought it was, uh, Jamie Stevenson had said that she'd driven up and down Darien and seen that the government, in her opinion, in terms of COVID shutdowns, had picking and chosen winners and blamed overspending by the Democrats for inflation. And then on the other side, you're seeing Congressman Jim Himes blaming the pandemic and, and people getting sick uh, for inflation. Uh, what was your takeaway from that whole conversation? I was surprised it was you know, mentioned early on. I mean, she really kind of hit that home. And I think it was mostly because you know, she's been a first select woman. So she knows this firsthand. And it was an issue at the time in terms of you know, what should government do to respond to this. But in truth, we saw this at all levels of government. The government quit, didn't quite know how to respond one way or the other, whether it was at the local, state, or even at the federal level. It was an unusual time. And so it was really unprecedented in terms of how government should operate at all levels. I felt like at the end, Kalila, the issue started to turn up a little bit because we had January 6th was a question you asked about and, and, and conduct from Republicans and Democrats at that point. And then we talked about national security. And that's where the two went at it a little bit. And I guess you could say that Jamie Stevenson thinks that this country is, is in a much weaker position. And you would hear uh, Congressman Himes say that it's Donald Trump's fault that we're in this position uh, in, in having a, a weakened position uh, in, in, in diplomacy. Uh, what was your takeaway when you were watching that? Whole yeah, thing? I think what I took away is that the United States is vulnerable, but the disagreement is about the source of that vulnerability. There are some people who would say they're domestic threats to our safety and to our security, and others who see that as external. And I think that what we've seen over the last really 20 years in this country is that it can't be an either or. And I would have liked to hear more from the candidates about those external and internal threats and what we do collectively. And I got to ask you a follow-up here because I feel like uh, a national security, more of like a cybersecurity too, is, is Jim Himes' wheelhouse. Do you think he showed and performed strong enough at that point? Do you think that, I guess, his anecdote about Trump and some of the things he was saying about North Korea, uh, do, do, you, do you think he, he showed strong enough at that point to uh, potential voters? Yeah, I think when you're in a debate and you have to think quickly on your feet and you have to respond and anticipate what your opponent may say and what the, the go-to may be, because neither candidate talked about cybersecurity, which is this threat that we don't have to even think about hand-to-hand -hand combat anymore because someone with a Wi-Fi connection and a computer can shut down local governments, hijack people's bank accounts, and make all of us vulnerable. And so my hope, again, is that as voters, but also as candidates and leaders, we stop thinking about these things in siloed positions and think together and think collectively, what do we do to prepare for the next pandemic, for the next threat, and the next challenge? We know it's coming. The next disruption. We know the next disruption, Wednesdays and Sundays at two. <laughs> Just saying, we know it's coming. But what do we learn from what we've been through so that we can get through these things on the other end? I know why people listen and watch Disrupted, because I just feel it when you're, you're, you feel so powerful about this issue and, and the next disruption coming, really, and that comes across here on the stage. At the end, 
We heard about transportation. Jonathan's jabbing me a little bit because he's like, this is what you want to hear about. Exactly. No, I, we had a debate the other night where we had John Larson and Dr. Larry Laser, their candidates in the first district, talking about transportation. And John Larson said something about how 91 and 84 were the greatest chokehold in New England. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, have you ever driven on Route 7 or 95 down or here? The or the Mayor Parkway. Mayor Parkway, <laughs> like right where they meet, right about right. here in Darien, mm -hmm. right? So uh, transportation is so important in this district, right, Jonathan? I would, I would imagine that's something that the people in this audience care about a lot. Not to mention, I don't want to ignore also public transit, right? There's always concerns here in this district, and God knows I know too well because I used to work for Congressman Shea's office, and it was an ongoing issue about what to do about Metro North. It still is. And even its various lines that extend beyond the main line of the New Haven line. Um, it's an ongoing saga, and there's no one way of really addressing it. Certainly more money could be mentioned, which obviously we heard from Congressman Himes, but there's got to be a bigger and bolder plan. And what do you do to connect with all the bus lines that exist you know, that in this county, let alone beyond two? It's a big issue, and it's not just one that could be purely federal. It's got to be something more centralized, even at the state level. I mean, in following this as a breaking news reporter for Connecticut Public the last couple of years, it's been hard to know where the state is in terms of which horse they're supporting or which dog in the fight they're supporting. At first it was uh, basically tolls essentially and uh, a 30-30 plan and then it was CT 2030 and now it's this time for CT thing where I guess it's a bit more reasonable where they're saying we can try to cut it down to 30 minutes uh, from New Haven to Stanford, 30 minutes Stanford to Grand Central, excuse me, 30 minutes Stanford to Grand Central and of course New Haven to Stanford, yes. 30 minutes, right? So that's the more reasonable plan, I guess. But did you hear a plan out of the candidates tonight? Did you hear anything on transportation that you could latch on to that maybe can get us out of this transportation mess we're in? This is the transportation hub here, I yeah, would say. Yeah, I, I think whoever figures that out, frankly, <coughs> won't just win elected office, but could probably get a MacArthur Genius Grant. Because it is they were a challenge. Handing those out. They were handing them out. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. But access to, to reliable transportation is about economic development, where companies are, how people can get to the jobs that they need to contribute to the community, contribute to the state. It's also about access to housing, where people live so that they can get to their jobs. And that is what I think I wanted to hear more of about how these things are connected and also the partnership that will be needed. Yes, you are an elected member of the United States Congress, whoever wins in this midterm, but you will have to work with Connecticut leaders to prioritize, to fund, and to work together to actually do something about this issue. In the end though, Frankie, to be fair, the Congressman did bring up transit-oriented development and brought up the example here yeah. in Norwalk, which was great to hear. At the same time, we also heard um, from the first elect woman too, she had mentioned um, you know, this whole concern surrounding Bridgeport and what to do to redevelop it. I've been waiting to hear more and more about that, just as the urbanists. The bridge to Congress, as yeah. the Jamie Stevenson mm -hmm. campaign mm -hmm. uh, calls it, and they had a really effective video that they had with Jamie walking, that, walking near that bridge, and there's like a drone shot and everything mm -hmm. like that. So that's certainly been a, a big thing. We talk about transportation. And I am going to move away from this debate shortly because I want to talk about more general items. But before we do, final thoughts on tonight's debate? You know, it was the battle of the centrists. Uh, and so maybe that's part of the reason why it was pretty civil for the most part, right? You heard a lot of Mrs. and Mr. and the titles kind of going mm -hmm. back and forth and pleasantries. 
But as you said earlier, it was either the Trump factor or how you know, Mrs. Stevenson wasn't quite like him, but still is mm -hmm. part of the party that is. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be a pathway differentiating maybe between the candidates and even the political parties. But I was glad to hear their stances. I was glad to hear that they were pronounced about it. But they are certainly two very different personalities, which shouldn't be shocking. That's what we're voting for. And let's be fair, this is the fourth congressional yeah. district after Dr. all. Dr. Brown, Dean, what do you think? Yeah, I think one of the other similarities, though, is that they're both policy wonks. Mm -hmm. They both have figured out not just that I have an idea, but what does it take to make that idea into policy and into reality? And I think voters want to know that someone doesn't just want to tell them what they want to hear, but actually has that experience of knowing what it takes. And so they were able to get into the weeds a little bit and then still pull back and go to the sort of national issues that draw people out. We heard that a lot tonight, and it will be interesting as the days go by, the weeks leading up to the election, if we hear more of that or if we'll hear more of sort of division and trying to make it clear where people stand. Just a couple of minutes left, and we're going to just move on to one other race. We're going to talk about the gubernatorial race. Oh, you had to bring that up tonight. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't prepare you guys for these questions, but I, I, I was kind of, uh, I guess, complaining to, to Kalila about this earlier because I'm so invested in breaking news because we've been always trying to see if there's actually a, a juvenile crime problem in the state because we hear so much about it. And I really haven't heard as much of where the problem is or at least where the numbers are. But I'm watching a commercial with Governor Lamont the other day, and I see that he's talking about addressing the root causes of juvenile crime. I guess my question for you, Kalila, is what I always ask uh, candidates, is there a juvenile prime, crime problem in Connecticut? I think it depends on how you define a crime problem in Connecticut. And I also think about the ways in which the data shows that no, there have not been those kinds of spikes that often are used as a political dog whistle. But what it also means is that people are willing to not address the real root challenges, the real challenges that young people in our state face. And when we scapegoat young people and then talk about the future of our state, how then do we keep people here because they feel like there's an investment in them? So I'm disappointed by that dog whistle. I understand why it's used because it's quite effective Right? You're always one incident away from people saying, see, I told you so, you should have done something more difficult. I don't know that that will serve our state well. I only have a minute left, and I wanted to follow up on that, but you really encompassed it there, which is what I was thinking when, when I'm watching this commercial. I'm a little surprised by it. I'm not going to have you respond to that really quickly. You only got about 20 seconds to say this. Bob Stefanowski, his connections to the Saudi government came up recently, and uh, a lot of heat on the uh, gubernatorial Republican candidate right now for dealings overseas. Look, both candidates have financial matters, right? We can't ignore also even the ties with the Lamonts, too. So you're going to see this with millionaire candidates. It's inevitable. It's unfortunate, but it's the nature of our politics here in Connecticut right now. I wish we could talk more about the nature of politics here in Connecticut. I had a great discussion with you guys, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, and of course, Jonathan Wharton. And the next time you're going to see us, you're going to see us Tuesday night, October 18th from Hartford. It's going to be the Secretary of the State debate. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm Frankie Graziano for Connecticut Public. Good night.